Hello, I'm Emma Barnett. Welcome to The Word, the series which shines a spotlight on well-known guests and invites them to talk in a way you've never heard before. We invite our guests to choose their favourite Bible passages and I hope to discover what something as intensely private as a favourite text reveals about them. We'll hear those Bible favourites read by Poirot actor David Suchet. We're part of Things Unseen, for people who think there's more to life than the material world. It would be no exaggeration to call today's guest Mr EastEnders. On the basis of an unsolicited script submitted to the BBC over 20 years ago, he was taken on as the writer for the hugely popular and celebrated soap and went on to script over 250 episodes. More recently, he's adapted the Nativity Story for BBC One. It was stripped across the week before Christmas in a primetime slot and won the Top Religious Programming Award. Tony Jordan, welcome to The Word. Hi, Emma. Now, you've said in the first few months of your research into the Nativity, you believe the event hadn't happened. But by the project's conclusion, I understand you thought it did. So what changed? Something of a paraphrase, but I guess that (laughs) there's no other way of doing that. I'm not particularly religious, so when I came to the project, or was asked to do the project by the BBC, I just, I couldn't find a way through it, really, and I couldn't find a way through it because everything that I'd done to that point had been contemporary, it had been the world that I knew, that I understood. And if if those events had happened in the world that I understood, so I'm thinking now, I'm sat with a group of mates in a pub, Joseph comes in and says, I've just seen Mary. She just said to me, she's pregnant, but apparently I'm not to worry, even though we haven't slept together yet, because it's God's baby. But blessed am I. I just couldn't get past that. I just couldn't, you know, I couldn't find a way through it. So to me, that felt like a, a story that had no truth in its DNA, no truth at its core, because I didn't, I didn't believe that central premise. And then as I started to research it, what I began to understand, I think the most important thing for me to understand was the way stories were told in that time. So that they were told orally. So they were stories around a campfire. Nothing was written down. So once you understood that, once you understand that about the Bible and that those stories come from a tradition of storytelling from one person to another and and much, not necessarily like Chinese whisper, but the things that are really important stay true because that's the reason for telling the story in the first place. But the details around the edges all become a bit blurred. So once I understood that, I found a way through it. And yes, I guess at the end of that seven months it took me to research it, I thought that this story had truth in its DNA. Did you get to that moment gradually or was it a kind of eureka moment or was it just something that dawned on you maybe at the end? I don't think it was a eureka moment. I don't think that, you know, I think, you know, people in religion love to have eureka moments. That's great. You know, they much prefer a thunderbolt to a, a gentle recognition of something. So I think that, you know, it wasn't over the whole period. Maybe it was over the period of, of a few nights because I write late at night sometimes. People say about writers, write what you know, because it allows the reader to sense your authenticity, to feel like they're in safe hands. And that's because I think we we can see truth and we recognise truth when we see it. And there was just a moment when I was writing, actually, not, not reading anything or reading any research, when I was writing Mary's story and when I was writing a scene between Mary and Joseph where Joseph said, were you raped? How could you be pregnant? What happened? And I was approaching the most difficult part of the story that I found. I was approaching it from the character's perspective. And suddenly the words rang true. And and suddenly there was the truth in it. 
And I also understood at that point, as I was writing that scene, that this was not a conversation that theologians or people with the religious slant would ever record. They'd gloss it up and they'd make it, um, you know, they'd just give him a dream and it would be all right. You know, they'd gloss over this. So that's when I spotted that there was truth in there. It was just hidden from me. Do you think, though, that you were the right person to do it? I think that it was a really interesting ask from the BBC because I wasn't, I wouldn't be the first choice, I guess, just because, you know, the kind of shows that I do, you know, my shows are EastEnders, you've mentioned, Life on Mars, Hustle, kind of cop shows. You know, I'm not the first name on the list for religious content, I wouldn't have thought. But the one thing that I try and do as a writer and the one thing that I aspire to is to make things accessible for an audience. So to take a story like this and make it accessible for a mainstream audience, not for it to be on BBC Three at kind of midnight or something, you know, but to do it primetime, BBC One, which is my stomping ground. And to not only that, but to make it accessible for an audience that watches EastEnders, that watches primetime mainstream drama. I think, yeah, that was, that was a smart thing to do. You have talked in the past about how people will naturally focus on the most important parts of a story. What for you is the heart of the nativity story? I think it's, the heart for me is about faith. The faith of Mary at first, obviously, but then eventually of Joseph, of this young couple. And they probably weren't married at that time. They were betrothed, I think was the phrase. And the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and tells her that she's going to carry the light of the world. The light of the world is inside her. And she's going to give birth to this child, this, the son of God, that's Jesus, that will rule the earth for infinity. No it's, pressure. No pressure. Um, that's kind of wow, you know. And she she buys into that, you know. She wholeheartedly buys into that. And I can't remember the exact text, but she proclaims herself God's handmaiden or, or whatever it is, But which is the words of acceptance that were given to her. I think I wrote them slightly different. Um, but it's the level of faith. That's To me, that's the heart of the nativity story to believe that, to have that level of faith. And I think that's important to me, and I think it's the central of the story, I think, because I envy it slightly. What do you mean? Well, I envy that level of faith. I don't have that level of faith. And I think that it would be a glorious thing to have. And I'm still waiting for that kind of, you know, when I hear Christians sometimes say, suddenly I had a, there was a warm glow and I felt love like I'd never felt before. And, and suddenly now, I, you know, I saw the light and I'm kind of still hanging around saying, OK, well, it'll be here any minute, I'm sure. Well, with that in mind, let's get some warmth from your first passage, which is taken from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favour with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. 
The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. So have you chosen the Annunciation for creative or more personal reasons? I think it's personal. I have a real personal affiliation with Mary since I did Nativity. Now, some of the research that I did suggested that she could have been as young as 12. I thought that was unpalatable for, for a mainstream audience. Mm. And so in my script, I don't know if it was ever mentioned on screen, but in my script she was 16. So this, to all intents and purposes, was a child. And a child with a love and a faith that was so great that you could say those things to her and she would accept them. And I guess, I don't know, maybe that's why she was chosen in the first place. I'm also the father of six children and four girls, so maybe there's an element of that to it, that this, this innocence and the beauty of innocence and the acceptance and unswerving faith I find completely beguiling. And so that's a personal thing, yeah. Do you find it credible? Yes, I do, just not in the way it's couched. You see, that's the problem with these things, is that I think there's a truth to things. If you go back and listen to the words of an adult Christ, if you go back and listen to those, and just the truth that's in that, I mean, regardless of your religious persuasions, just look at the words and ignore the rest, who he was or what he was. Just look at the, look at the rest. And whether that's the Sermon on the Mount or let he who's without sin cast the first stone or consider the lilies of the field, it's like, wow, that's like the truth. Whatever the truth is, as a truth... It's undeniable. So if you accept then that this is a man who tells the truth, the blinding, shining in your face, the truth, regardless of the consequences, then when he also says, I am the son of God and the only way to heaven is through me. So what? Well, he's, he's suddenly a liar in that bit, is he? Suddenly he's not a truth sayer. Suddenly he's not a man who tells unswerving, blinding truth. He tells a few porkies as well. I don't believe that. So I think if you accept one and recognise one as truth, you have to, if you have any intelligence at all, you have to kind of say, OK, well, there, there must be something in the other. It may not be a truth that I understand yet, but there is truth to it. So if you accept then that he was the Messiah, you then have to go back and say, OK, well, now the Messiah has to be born. <laughs> And so the birth is kind of, you know, it's not going to be something like Channel 4's One Born Every Minute. It's going to be a little bit special. And this is really the Son of God. This is the Messiah that's going to arrive on Earth. I guess then it's not beyond comprehension that it had to be special. In, and so you would have a virgin birth. You would have an angel proclaiming its arrival. Once you look at the thing as a whole and once you start to break down those barriers of it's all a bit daft, isn't it? suddenly you see that there is a truth there. It's just that you need to find it. You sound like you have found it for someone who doesn't have faith. No, no, no. I'm just not stupid enough to dismiss things. And I think the world is full of idiots. And I think that's the problem that we have. And I think that mankind as a whole, and I include the alumni of science and religion in the same bracket, whatever knowledge we have as mankind, I think I've often said that the equivalent to me is kind of a chimp finding the light switch in the Sistine Chapel. They could turn it on and off and now suddenly, you know, they're all geniuses and they know everything. It's like, oh, look, we can make light. Oh, look, and it 
we could turn it off again. We're brilliant, aren't we geniuses? And therefore we know everything. And they haven't even looked up at the ceiling yet, let alone gone outside and seen the city beyond and let alone gone beyond and seen the world, the earth beyond and let alone see the universe beyond that. That's kind of the mental capacity that we have, I think. And so for anybody to say there is no God is a moron, literally. And equally, I can't say there is a God because I don't know what the frame of reference for that is. I know that there isn't a man with a white beard sitting on a cloud, and I don't know what God is. I think it's beyond my comprehension, but I think there's something, don't you? Yeah, I think there is as well. I like the idea that you can't not say it. I mean, I think a lot of people could relate to that, even if they probably think it's the cool thing to say a lot of the time. We're quite into that, aren't we? Let's, let's have a listen to your second passage, which is from the book of Genesis, chapter 6, verses 12 to 22. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on the earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood, make rooms in it, and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof an opening one cubit high all around. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has the breath of life in it, Everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you, two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Now this passage comes from the story of the flood which has inspired your next TV drama. Why has it inspired you? Oh, I don't know. I think maybe religion's a room I shouldn't have gone in. Well, you're not getting out of it now, are you? <laughs> no, I feel like I'm trapped, happily trapped, I have to say. I mean, the reason I chose that passage and the collection, I think, to the passage I chose for Mary was that they both show this faith again. It comes back to this thing where you know, God has spoken to one of us. He's not talking to a pope or the high and the mighty. He's talking to kind of my people, if you like. And they have complete faith and they do as he's asked. And Noah goes on to build this huge ark in the middle of the desert. Wow, that's kind of faith for you. So I'm intrigued by the faith thing again. The thing that intrigues me most about these stories is they are wonderful stories that we all know. We all know the story of the nativity. We all know the story of Noah. And I think what I want to do as a dramatist and as a writer is to bring those stories again, not to be clever with them and say, oh, look at me, aren't I clever? Look, I'm changing this and it's not that and, and blah, 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 blah. It's not about that. It's not about me. It's about making the story accessible and making it accessible to an audience where it would just make them think and just make them think, oh, okay, do you know what? I knew about that, but I'd never saw it in that way before. And with Noah particularly, what we've done with that, we turn it into a children's story. 
and it's just about the animals two by two you know you talk to anybody but it's just well the animals go two by two and you get filmmakers who are very very clever apparently and very pleased with themselves and what they show is they show always show two lions following two ducks you know and it's kind of oh look you see because the lions aren't eating the ducks do you see what I'm doing there it's like oh please is that it is that is that the extent of your message so I think for me it's not about the animals uh, the two by two thing it's not about the flood in fact I'm out of there long before the flood I don't do the 40 days and the 40 nights to me it's about a story of one man's faith one man's faith in the face of everything's speaking to the contrary I mean you know they talk of his family you know so this was a man who lived with his wife who lived with his sons and their wives so this was a kind of a big house this was the Waltons right so we're now in the Waltons and they're all sat around having their tea and you know fish fingers and chips or whatever they were eating in those days and dad comes home and says okay I know we're living I know it hasn't rained for 20 years <laughs> and we're living in a desert but I've just spoken to God and he wants me to build a big boat <laughs> you know you're going to think he's crazy so that's that's my story really so his whole family would surely be against him so I'm just going to try and tell the story as truthfully as I can well Let's talk about EastEnders a minute, because I couldn't not do that while I have some time with you. Now, the good in EastEnders is often sort of personified in one character. I think you know who I'm going to say, lovely Doc Cotton. She is known as one of the best Christian characters in Britain on television, especially in drama. But some Christian commentators, instead of her being an icon, they hold her up as an embarrassment. Reverend Hayley Matthews, she's a chaplain at Salford's Media City, she once said, I don't think Doc Cotton is representative of Christians. Do you think her character is still relevant? Is she an icon or is she a relic? I love that there's a standard Christian <laughs> and that uh, you either represent them or you don't. I'd, and I'd love to see what the blueprint is for that. I'd love to see a photograph. It feels like it'd be one of Spike Milligan's old sketches of you know the perfect Christian. Look, Dot represents Dot Cotton. That's who she represents. She's a character. She's a fully formed, three-dimensional character who has a faith. And it may not be the same as your faith, and she may not uh, display her faith in the way you display your faith. And that's the bloody problem with religion. And God bless Haley and everything else. But the curse of religion is people pointing at each other and saying, you're not the same as me. You don't do it the same as me. And it's like, stop it. <laughs> Allow people to be what they are. I think that what's great about Dot is that she's flawed. She's not a perfect She's a Christian and she believes, I, I think she genuinely believes, but she's flawed as well, you know. So sometimes she's guilty of being selfish, sometimes she's guilty of gossiping, sometimes she's guilty of judging other people, and that's life. And so there's a reality to it. And I think some of these people that pour scorn on things like that don't live in a real world. But you could see how some people may find her very, very old fashioned in the sense of, you know, when she walks around quoting bits of the Bible and you know, sort of wringing her hands and looking very worried about things. And they do hold people up on soaps, rightly or wrongly, as almost emblems of society at that moment in time. So do you at least accept some of the issue maybe with her as the Christian character in EastEnders? No, not at all. I accept the fact that she's Doc Cotton and that's the character. And that's that's it. And if she's a bit old fashioned, well, the character's 192 or 80 something I don't know how old she is but she's getting on endless. a bit she's endless <laughs> um, she's evergreen but you know that's that's the character that's what the character does and it's not done to poke fun at Christianity because I've written it and I haven't and if you go back and look I remember writing a scene for Dot and I can't remember where it was where she raged in a church uh, a figure of Christ with real doubt and it was a crisis of faith for her now we're doing that on prime time television to a mass audience 
I think that if the price to pay for that is she quotes the Bible occasionally because that's her rudder, because that's what it's about, then I'll settle for that. You now obviously say very involved with this religious world, with the religious narratives. <laughs> you're, you're happily trapped, you've said to me. But why do you think Bible narratives lend themselves to adaptations? I just think they're great stories, aren't they? Aren't they great stories? And they're huge. I mean, I'd love to make my way through the Bible and just kind of take those great stories. But I think that, to me, I feel like I'm claiming them back. I'm claiming them back, you know, from my audience. And I'm saying, look, everybody's added all these things. I'm sure that people have added to them. Every time they've been, you know, kind of a, a version of the Bible's been rewritten or, you know, you've had people that are forming a church for the first time and they said, oh, that's a bit uncomfortable. That doesn't really sit in with what we want to do. So we'll just change that slightly. I want to go back to the heart of those stories and the reason that those stories were told, because that's what makes them powerful. There's a truth that we all recognize, this instant empathy within them, because we recognize that there's truth there somewhere. And also, if you can find a way, as with Noah, you know, I'm kind of reading passages of Noah and I'm looking at things like earthquakes and famine and wars and, and things, and I'm thinking, oh, hang on, it's not very unlike 2014. Well, that's when it'll be out, so I'm looking forward to it. Tony Jordan, thank you very much for joining me. I'm Emma Barnett, and you've been listening to The Word. The Word is part of Things Unseen, the platform for people who think there's more to life than the purely material. And you can hear this programme again and find other editions of Things Unseen at www.thingsunseen.co.uk.